bandwidth for the ZA Dev Chat podcast is provided by cloudafrica.net. Do you need high-performance cloud servers that are fast, secure, and reliable? Get your server up and running in five minutes. Check out cloudafrica.net. This episode of the ZA Dev Chat podcast has been produced and edited by Michael McDonald. Welcome to episode 12 of the ZA Dev Chat. My name is Stephen McDonald, and tonight we are chatting to Simon Stewart about going solo as a developer. Um, our panel tonight is Peter Hermesheis. Hello from warm Riches Bay. It's supposed to be winter here. <laughs> and then Simon Stewart. Hello. Um, Len can't make it tonight. Unfortunately, we've shifted our recording from Thursday night to Saturday night due to load shedding, which didn't happen in the end. So lots of uh, administrative stuff for absolutely nothing. Thank you very much, ESCOM. Cool. Simon, do you want to give us a quick introduction to who you are and your background? I can, I can do that. I can do that. So I'll talk to you about what I, what I do at the moment and, and forego the background because there'll be, there'll be jibes coming from your side, I'm sure. Um, so in terms of what I, what I do, I, I do a couple of things. I run a consulting company called Broken Keyboard Software, and I run a training company called Code Skills which is focusing on trying to trying to rectify some of the uh, some of the skills deficits that we've got at the moment. Um, and a couple of months out of the year for the last couple of years, I've been organizing the JavaScript in South Africa conference. And I also have a, a backend as a service product, which we are in the process of launching. So that's, that's kind of more or less, that's more or less what I do in terms of, in terms of day jobs. That's very cool. So how long has Broken Keyboards been going now? Since 2000. So you've been working for yourself for 15 years now. That is, that's pretty impressive. I've been working for myself for 12 out of the last 13 years. That is, that is really, really cool. Myself or, or in partnership with someone else. Mm. So. so why did you initially decide to go solo? What was the, what was the, the, the thing that pushed you over the edge and you decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to be my own boss. So it was actually just, it was an opportunity that came up from being involved in user groups, which is something that I, I still advocate people doing. Uh, and so few people do, which is a bit of a, bit of a broken record from my side. Um, and it was just a really good opportunity, and it's it's with someone that I I still have a business contact with, and still do some work, and uh, they're actually also going to be sponsors of the conference as well. So it was really just an opportunity, and and having a having a hatred even at that point in my in my life for uh, for big corporates. So it all kind of worked out. It all kind of worked out. All the all the bad bosses leading up to that kind of kind of helped me jettison into something else. So the the reason I, I I wanted to do this show tonight and I, and I wanted to chat to you is I, when I was in the process of switching jobs last year, one of the the ideas that I had was to possibly become a freelancer, you know, make make the leap into the great unknown. And my my one concern was, you know, would I be able to provide for my family? And you and I had a really really good chat, um, and I watched a talk that you did at. PHP South Africa, was it last year or was it 2013? It was the end of last year. Yeah. 
Um, and that, that to me was quite, quite an eye opener. And over the last few months now, I've heard people, a number of people talking about, you know, them having this idea of going solo and how hard could it possibly be. And so I decided, you know, it'd be a good idea to get you on um, because, you know, you've, you've seen the hard parts, I'm sure, and you've experienced the good parts. Um, so can you, can you just get us started with what are some of the really, really hard parts of going solo? Start, you know, actually, before we do that, can we discuss the difference between being a freelancer and actually starting your own company and marketing yourself as a company? You know, do you advocate one over the other? Is there benefit? So I think to kind of answer that in a, in a bit of a rounded, roundabout fashion, um, it's not for everyone. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. It doesn't mean that the people that are that don't have a proper day job and are freelancers or contractors are, you know, have anything different. It's just maybe their brain is wired in a different way. So I don't think it should be the, the target for everyone because it's not, it's not for everyone. And that's fine. That's an absolutely fine thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, I think the misconception is if you're working in a, in a corporate or in a, in a company that's acting like a corporate then you can break away and you, you're your own boss and you can do what you want. And that's, uh, that's not really the case. I think you go from having one boss that you may or may not like to having like half a dozen bosses um, that, are, that are paying the salary. So you, you need to kind of factor that into your decision. It's not just a matter of breaking away and, and completely doing exactly what you, what you want to do. That's, that's the misconception. And then the one other thing that I found very interesting is something I never thought of is that, you know, with you being your own boss, um, taking leave is, is not as easy as it used to be. So when you work for somebody else, you have, you know, paid leave. When you work for yourself, you're paying for your own leave. You know, it's the, the time that you don't work, you're not making money. Is is was was that something that was really difficult for you to come to terms with when when you started uh, working full time on on broken keyboards? It, it is. It's something you need to factor in. I, I think what often happens is people work work for someone else. They they get paid X amount, and they know that that it's you know X times two that's been invoiced to the customer, and they think, well, let's let's you know cut out the middleman and let's go direct. And we're going to get all this money, and it's going to be fantastic, and and you know your income isn't going to increase, and it's not necessarily like that. Um, for me, it's to to go on my own is more around freedom and kind of choosing choosing my my path going forward. It's not so much because I'm going to going to earn more money. I don't think that should be the 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 direct kind of target for people. Uh, you need to factor it in. So if you're going to take off two weeks in December, you need to factor, factor in that that's half your, your month's income you're not going to get. Mm. And if you're, you know, you're someone who takes sick leave or wants to take annual leave during the year, you need to factor that in. You need to make sure that you've done your, that you've fired up Excel as much as you might not want to and actually done the calculation. So, Simon, what simple. type of person do you think um, would actually thrive in that type of environment? Is it 
Um, because you said, oh, I don't think about money. Um, and I honestly do think that if you're chasing money, then you shouldn't really be in this industry. Um, you should be doing it for the fun of it, right? Um, or for the love of it. Well, that's just my opinion. Um, but what type of person, because you you'd obviously get the person that would say, oh, freelancing or this running my own thing is going to be fun. I'm going to sit in my boxes every day, wake up at 10, work two hours, because that's how it works, right? Um, so that that's the that's the misconception. That's the misconception. Fantastic. So many people have read a read a Timothy Ferris book and and figure they're going to work a couple of hours a week and they're going to coin it. Um, I certainly like that to be the case, but but I haven't got that right. So I work more than four hours a week for sure. Um, but I think just on the on the terms. I mean, I know it's it's semantics, but for me, it's. An idea of a, a freelancer or a contractor is really just someone that's working full-time for someone and they just don't get the full-time benefits. Uh, and I think often that's that's the case. You speak to people about whether they're full-time employed and they kind of got their own thing. And so often they, they think they've got their own thing, but actually what they're doing is they're working 150 plus hours for one client. And that's not really a freedom thing. That's just working full-time and not getting things like annual leave and sick leave and bonuses and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of pointless. And and without getting into the... In that, um, you know, size doesn't want you to do that. They don't want you to be working full-time for someone and think you've got your own company and to try and benefit from that. So there's, you know, there's percentages you've got to factor, factor in from a size point of view. So you kind of end up having to do multiple jobs, which is, which is fun if you've got like a split personality, which I think is a bit of a prerequisite. But otherwise, it's, it's quite tiring. So you, you mentioned, you know, the nice round number of 150 hours a week that some people work for certain, for certain clients and whatever. With you, with you running multiple projects at a time, uh, you know, trying to get products off the ground, you know, for, for your own companies and stuff. Uh, did you feel that once you, once you started working for yourself, that you actually ended up pulling more hours a week um, than what you did when you were working in a corporate job? So in terms of productive hours, yeah. So I think it, when you work for yourself and you've got to, you've got to make sure that, that, different hours are billable and certain hours are not billable, I think you become a lot more pedantic around being productive. Um, and I think you, I wouldn't say you perfect it, but you certainly get a lot better at, at being productive than you would if you were working for someone else where you don't have to be productive the whole time. So if you're not productive, you know, on a, on a Monday for some reason, you just don't get paid on a Monday which is fine if you can factor that into your budget. But otherwise, you, it's, a, it's a pretty quick motivator to figure out why you can't be productive and what's stopping you and to really get, get around that. Yeah. That's quite, it's, it's quite interesting. You, you also mentioned billable hours now. So, so how do you determine what is a billable hour? Is it something that you, you, know, you try and bill the client and the client goes, yeah, I'm not going to pay for that? Or is it something that you that gets set out initially? So when you meet with a client for the first time to discuss potential work, do you bill a client for that? Or at that point, are you actually working for free? Because nobody likes meetings and meetings, 
you know, meetings are, is work, are work. Wow, my English is failing me tonight. But, but, you, but you get the idea. So I think that there are probably a couple of angles in that. The, the one is the pre-sales thing. So if you're working for somebody else, you're getting paid for that whole pre-sales cycle. You're getting paid for the multiple meetings and you know the backwards and forth with contracts and that kind of thing. But if you're if you're on your own, you, you don't get paid for that, and you need to just factor that in as well. Um, but I think you you begin to become a little bit better at working out where the customers are just fishing around for for rates and and just want to kind of float an idea and just get a feedback on on costs and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it comes down to, to choosing customers carefully. And it sounds very, very arrogant or elitist, and, and that's certainly not the case. But you've, you've got to understand that these are people that you're going to be working with for you know, several months or six months or multiple years, which is, which is you know, we're lucky to have some customers that we do that with. And if, if you're not getting along, it's, it's kind of a pointless relationship from, from day one, I think. So... I heard a, a really interesting quote, and I, I don't know who it's from. It's probably from multiple people at this point. Um, but they said you've got to, you know, if you don't enjoy having uh, lunch with someone, you're not going to enjoy working with them, uh, which I think is a, a nice thing. So you've just got to factor that in. Um, I don't have a an exact formula, um, but I think you've got to enjoy the people that you work with, whether they're customers or colleagues or, or whatever. So do you have have you have actually fired a client and said, you know, I don't enjoy working with you, you know, get out. So okay, so I certainly haven't said that. Uh, <laughs> I think there've definitely been situations where the customer wants something that you're not able to give them. Uh, and that might be the amount of time or uh you know the, the the kind of person that they want. Maybe you can. Maybe it's just not something that you're able to give them. Um, and I think it's important not to just fire a customer. I know that's been something that's been kind of thrown around on blogs the last sort of year or two. That's it's kind of in vogue to fire customers, which I think is a bit dangerous. Uh, but I think it's important not to let a customer, not to drop a customer, to rather offer them some way of of continuing with with someone else if it makes more sense. Yeah. So when so we keep talking about about clients and customers and but when you started so you mentioned that one of your first customers uh, it sounds like came out of a out of a either a contact from a user group or it was somebody at the user group but for somebody new considering going solo how, how do you go about finding clients and customers so I reckon starting from a zero base where you've got no network must be a terrible thing, uh, which is one of the reasons, again, why I recommend that people go to user groups and go to meetups and just expand the network. Even if they're not to, uh, you know, to actually expand your network is when you don't need it because I think people kind of pick up whether you're, you're talking to them because you want employment or you're talking to them purely because you want to you know, you just want to kind of increase your, your contact list, which I think is a, a better thing. So I reckon if, if you're in a position where you're saying, I don't know anyone, how do I start cold calling? I think that's immediately a, a 
bad place to be. Uh, and I think better to rather make sure you've got a network and then choose if you can use it or not. And I think that's one of the things, just to kind of hop on the, the anti-corporate thing that I've got, is if you work for someone else, the, the people that you've got on your on your, your contact list are not your contacts. They're, you know, they're the customer, they're, they're, the, they're your employers. It's not yours to take. So, so again, it's, um, it's one of the reasons you've got to get out there and, and meet people that are not directly related to your customers when you're working for someone else. Yeah, that, that is quite interesting. Cause the one thing I've, I thought of, um, when I was considering going solo as I was thinking, you know, I've met a lot of people over the years. Um, obviously, when, when when I left Chase, there's no real possibility of me discussing anything with any of my clients in inverted commas because, you know, that was just not something that ever interested me. the The clients, I mean, the clients I had were huge. But looking, thinking back to previous um, companies I worked at. I knew a lot of people from those companies. I knew a lot of people that needed development work. I was thinking, I wonder what happens if, you know, if I contact them and go, you know, remember that thing you wanted that when I was there, I said I couldn't do for you. Well, I can do it now. You know, where, where do you draw the ethical line of saying, you know, I can't contact customers from previous employers. Is there a timeline on that legally or ethically? Is that one of those things, you know, you you don't date your best friend's ex girlfriend type thing. That's a that's an interesting one because it's it there's there's a finite number of com, uh, you know possible customers that you can have. There's only so many banks. There's only so many insurance companies. There's only so many uh, advertising agencies. That kind of thing. Um, so I reckon it would be. It's not. I don't think it's it's required to never ever speak to those people again, but I think it's important to make sure that you're you're satisfying your your contract with the previous employee or employer. I think that's really important, and I think if your gut tells you that you've got to go and fish out a contract and double check dates and that kind of thing, it's it's probably an indication that you're a bit too close to that line. I reckon. So. I'm fortunate I'm, I'm not really in that position, um, but it's definitely something you've got to be careful of. It's a, it's a small industry, and I think you don't, want to, you don't want to burn bridges, so you need to just bear that in mind. So, Peter, how many clients have you stolen from your previous employers? I'm not at liberty to say. So, oh man, I shouldn't have done that because I had such a good question and now I've, oh yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> and now Simon's going to be like, dude, that was a lame question. So b- before somebody decides to go solo full time, uh, would you recommend, you know, with, with the you know, current economy and the way the internet works and all that fun stuff, would you recommend that, um, that people considering going solo or starting their own company tries to do you know tries to actually launch a a product while they're you know, while they're employed full time so that they can actually start getting an idea for what it's like to have a product out there what it's like to have the clients you know speak to you directly as the owner of a company or as the owner of a product 
to see what it's like, to see if you enjoy dealing with that type of stuff um, before making the commitment to going solo full-time? I think the best thing that you can do is if you're employed full-time and someone's covering your salary is to make sure that you're committed to to doing the work that you're obligated to do, which is which should be obvious, but also making sure that you use that time to, to increase your skill set. Mm. I think that's the most important thing. I wouldn't be employed full-time and spend time at night kind of building a product because the risk with that is it just it's just too close to home. I think there's going to be too many questions asked if you you know resign and the next month you've launched this big product. I think there's going to be too many questions asked. So I would stay clear of that. Um, but I would use the, use the, the benefits that you get for working for a big company, and that is to get exposure to a bunch of industries and to work with a bunch of people and to get to know how to get things done in a, in a medium size or big company. And also just to focus on improving your craftsmanship. I think that's something that's, that doesn't happen. Um, and I think it's something that can happen quite easily. You can do that because you can walk away with your skills and that's not something that, that ever is going to be called into question. So this raises a really interesting point. So if somebody had to work, let's say an hour or two hours a night on a side project, something small, something, you know, different technology, completely different to their problem domain they deal with during the day at work. Do you feel that that is kind of um, not quite stealing time from your full-time employer, but stuff that you shouldn't be focused on because you're almost burning yourself out quicker than what you would do otherwise? You know, I think that's, it's one of those things that if, if you're employed full-time and if the relationship is not working out for whatever reason, the fact that, that this mythical person is going to be doing things after hours, it's that kind of thing that's going to get brought up. And it's that kind of thing that potentially is going to, is going to turn ugly because it's too easy for the, for the company to presume the person's been spending their time on this side project instead of their main work. Uh, so I think that is, that is a risk. So there's got to be a very clear... A distinction between, you know, you as a open source developer at night and you as corporate developer during the day. There's got to be not only from a, from a legal point of view, but there's just got to be a very clear distinction. Yeah, yeah. And and employ employers don't understand why people would want to do that. I think a lot of them are of a of a different generation and a different way of thinking. And for them, it doesn't make sense. They, I think a lot of people believe that employment is, is ownership, really. I think that's mm. kind of... Yeah, definitely. Um, so my recommendation is, is just be very careful about that. If you want to have a chat with your... Uh, it's not you specifically, but I mean you as the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is be open about it and say, this is what you want to do. This is why you want to do it. Um, and this is how it's completely separate to the, the domain of the business. And can you get the go-ahead to do that? I think it's better to do it up front and actually get it in, in writing so there's no misunderstanding. Uh, it might sound very 
good corporate, but if you're working for a corporate, it's probably better to to play by the rules, I reckon. I know that's... Oh, I think it's definitely safer. I mean, the last thing you want to do is, is, like you said, resign, you know, work your last day on the Friday, and on Monday you launch this massive product that starts making a ton of money. Employer goes, hey, I think you were working on this other project on, you know, on company time, and now we're going to sue you. Um, and very interestingly that I'm now very careful with the contracts that I that I read I mean, obviously, this is something that's basic. You should be careful with the contracts that you read. But one of the one of the corporates I worked at when I started my career, um, I actually wasn't allowed to write blog posts. I wasn't allowed to answer questions on forums. I wasn't allowed to do anything like that because any code that I thought of, regardless of the problem domain, belonged to that company didn't matter if it was three o'clock in the morning and I was sitting at home and I was writing about a technology that people at work had never, ever heard of. I was not allowed to publish that because it belonged to them. So I ended up publishing under a pseudonym for a while, which was incredibly lame because I, I think my blog posts were something along the lines of, you know, what is JavaScript? And today I ran into a foreign key constraint. What is a foreign key constraint? That type of really basic stuff. Um, and yeah, just before I left there, my, my manager there found out that it was me. And he said, you know, don't let the people in HR find out because there will be, you know, there will be serious problems. Um, so definitely check contracts very, very carefully. That intellectual property clause is a rather touchy one with with big corporates. So I don't, and again, this is not. I'm not a. I'm not a, a legal person of any sort, but I, you know, you've got to you've got to wonder how enforceable it is. Um, but having said that, you've also got to acknowledge that as soon as you get into that argument, then tension increases at the workplace and relationships go sour and and it doesn't end nicely for anyone. So I agree with you. Double-check contracts before you sign it. Um, but I think also it's, you know, employment is not is not ownership. So I don't know how enforceable that is. Um, but it's probably better to... To not get full advice from a from a podcast. <laughs> no, I agree with that. So the the, the 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 flip side is, you know, if if a corporate takes you to court, um, and you're you know just starting out your career or whatever, the finances you have available to defend yourself in court versus what they've got to prosecute you in court, there's a there's a, a rather large gap. So don't take that chance. I reckon. Um, Peter, sorry, were, were you trying to say something there? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I'm enjoying oh, the conversation oh, listening. Oh, sorry. So we focused, I think, a lot on the negative stuff um, and the dangers and all of this. What has been the most awesome thing about working for yourself? Well, there are probably a couple of things. And the most important thing for me is that I'm I'm in control. And like I said in the beginning, there's you go from having one bus to having multiple buses, which is which is a different different discussion. Um, but it just means I can make the call. I can make the decision about where to put my energy, uh, when to take time off to go to conferences and speak at conferences and all that kind of thing. And I don't need to 
don't need to go through a whole committee to get something done. And I think I think customers appreciate it. I think they appreciate the fact that that you're happy to take calls after hours, which occasionally gets gets misused, but that's how it is. Um, and I think they appreciate the fact that you can just get things done. That's what people want. I don't think dealing with levels of management and having to book time and book resources and what, 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 I don't think customers really care. So for me, the big thing is around being able to have a, have a life, which includes work because I, I enjoy the work that I do, but being able to actually, actually create it as I go without having to go through anyone else to get permission to do anything. And the flip side of that is, is you have all the responsibility but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. So for me, that's the important thing. Yeah. So getting to make all the decisions, do, do you also get to decide what technology you're going to use for a problem domain? Or is that something that's often dictated by, by clients? So some customers for some of the corporates that I do work for uh, do, have, do have prerequisites. Um, typically, they don't know why they have prerequisites. <laughs> Architects who have, have preordained the technologies 10 years ago and that, and that is what needs to be used. And that's fine. I think you've got to know when, when to fight certain fights and when not to. I think when, you, when you're in a corporate, I think you've got to, you've got to toe the line, um, which is funny because I could never do that when I was working for a corporate. But when, they, when they're a customer, it's just a different relationship. <laughs> so, so that's kind of on the corporate side. On the... The smaller projects and the startups that I do work for and things like that, they just want things to be done. They don't care what technology it, it gets done in. They want to make sure that it's, it's done properly and there's certain metrics that you can use to make sure it's done properly. And they want to make sure it's done with a technology that you can at least point to uh, a community online that says, hey, this is, this is cool. It's not like one person who says it's cool. Um, so that's good. And again, it's, it's a responsibility thing because you can't, you can't blame anyone else, um, which I think you, you kind of train to do when you work for a big company. You get, get to point at other people. Um, but when you're on your own or you've got a small company, then you don't get to do that. And, and for me, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I think so too. But I, I also think that you need to have that, that mindset going into it that – you know, I'm I'm the person that's wholly and solely responsible for stuff now. But I like the idea of getting to, you know, getting to play with different technologies, get to do what you would like to do, except, you know, when you have a, a big corporate, you know, dictate the technology that you need to use. So when when you when you're um, working with the with with corporates and with clients, how do you how do you ne- negotiate estimates on things is it something where they they say to you look that we need this in the next two weeks and you just try and get it done in the next two weeks or does that fully depend on the clients and the urgency of the work that they have it's it's really dependent i've done work where there's a, a fixed budget which has been predetermined and a fixed budget where you determine it and where there's you know, no actual budget, but there's a, uh, an understanding that things are going to get done really quickly. So 
I don't have a magic formula for that. I think estimating is always going to be a tricky thing. But I reckon coming up with, and I think this is a, a Mike Cohen thing, where you have uh, like a band of features where you can guarantee that those are going to get done. And then you have another band that says, these are the ones that I think we can maybe get done. And then you have another another section of features where you can say, look, we're not going to get these done. So it just gives the customer a bit more of a, a way to play around with priorities. And it means that your, your target for what you must get done is a bit broader. It's not, you know, from one to 10, it's kind of one to eight, you know, between eight and 12, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I think it comes down to having trust with the, with the customer. Uh, this is something that came up, I don't know, on, on Twitter or Slack or something like that. I think if your customer trusts you because you have delivered for them, then I think it, it has a different kind of discussion. You, you don't talk about hours to get the feature done. You, know, you more talk around the value that you can give them and, and kind of more broad strokes and not, not semantics in a, in a contract. So, you know, get a, get a couple of good customers and hang on to them. I think that's, that's something that we all try to do. So that being said now, when, when you meet with a customer for the first time, so somebody has referred you to a, to a customer, this customer has been burnt in the past, how do you go about actually building trust with that customer for, for the first set of work that you do? Obviously, if you do that work well, you know, there's natural trust that starts forming. But they, they bring you in and they say, look, we've been burnt before, we want this feature, and you've got, I don't know, two weeks has to be done in two weeks. If it's not done in two weeks, we're not going to pay you. You know, uh, how do you how do you handle that? Or is that a case of you know I don't think this relationship's going to work and walk away? No, I think you've I think you've got to have empathy for the customer. If a customer's that defensive, you know, either because they told you or because you can figure it out that they've been burnt before. So I think you've you've got to understand that trying to. Trying to play hardball with the customer like that, I don't think is going to end well. Uh, the one thing that I try and do is I try and take off a, a tiny chunk of work that I can get done and use that for, for building trust with the customer and building a bit of momentum. So ideally something that you can actually deliver, not just like a chunk of code that doesn't do anything. Um, so either it's a, you know, maybe a couple of admin screens or maybe some analysis and a document or, or whatever it is. But taking off a, a, a phase that is small enough that the customer isn't too concerned around, uh, isn't too concerned around trust. So you're not taking six months and you're going to develop something big and they have to pay you a big chunk of money. You're taking, you know, a week or two weeks or a couple of days or whatever it is to do something and they can see that you can deliver. I think that is important. Because uh, most companies can't do that because they've got like a chain of command and all these management structures that kind of prevent anything from getting done. And, and I think customers are getting, they're paying management tax the whole time and they're not getting any benefits. And I think the, um, the appeal of sending stuff offshore is just more and more appealing if that's all you want to do. Yeah, so have you been caught with meetings to discuss meetings, to plan for meetings, so that you could get work done? Yeah, 
so so that's that's something that I that I'm always trying to defend against. But I think you also need to again you need to have empathy for the customer because mm-hmm. maybe the customer wants to sit down and have a discussion. Yeah. So I think you need to look at the long term. For me, it's not about trying to make a, a bunch of money from one customer this month and then move on to another customer. That doesn't help anyone. So if it means a couple of meetings and, and a bit of kind of hands-on time, I think that's fine. But having said that, I think you must also try and discuss with the customer that certain things are productive and certain things are not. But without doing it in a patronizing way of trying to educate the customer, I think that's that's not a great way to put it. I think it's more just around just trying to let them know where your strengths are and, and where you're productive and where you're not. Dido, anything from your side so far, did? Um, no, I'm I'm very curious about something though, um, about um, basically how Simon actually separates out his day, or like how he splits out his day, um, like especially working on multiple projects. Um, I'm obviously segueing into something uh, completely different, but it's still relevant, oh, I think. Yes, definitely. Um, so, if you're working on a couple of projects, uh, Simon, how how do you plan your day? Okay. So in terms of in terms of kind of productivity techniques, which I guess is kind of going to half cover that thing, um, there are a couple of things that I I try and do, and I'm not always a hundred percent following the the advice I give, which I guess is what every consultant does, <laughs> which is just how it is. Um, but a couple of things that I use that are really really help me be productive and really help me focus, because I think it all comes down to focus. Uh, the one is the Pomodoro technique, which is where you divide up your day into kind of 20, 25 minutes uh, sprints, I guess you can call them. Uh, that's really cool because it just means that you can focus and hopefully get things done. Uh, it's a very easy technique to explain, but it's a very tricky thing to actually do, uh, which I think is why some people get, get put off it uh, because it looks really simple and they kind of cast it aside and they don't use it. Uh, so in terms of kind of micro-focus, that's, that's something that I do. Um, I also make quite a lot of to-do lists, which I'm not a fan of, but I think it's a good way to just keep, keep focus. Um, hypocritically or kind of as a contradiction, I don't have email on my phone. Uh, I've done it on purpose because I don't want the phone beeping the whole time because it's just going to draw your attention, and invariably you get caught into some some big email discussion about something that you didn't really need to be involved in. Um, so my phone's on the whole time, and if a customer needs anything, they can phone. But in terms of kind of picking up emails every second of the day, I think is, I think is crazy. Um, and I think also learning to say no is, is important. So if you've planned to do certain things during the day and something comes up that's not as important, I think it's important to just push it aside and, and defer it until some other time. So it's easier said than done, um, but that's definitely something that I try and do. And I think working for yourself, I think you become more productive. Uh, that's my, my belief. You don't have to have to listen to complaints at the water cooler and have meetings that don't mean anything and hear people complain about meetings and all that kind of nonsense. So it means that you can get a lot more things done. So it's difficult to kind of create a comparison to working on your own and working in a big company because I think 
the amount of work you can get done is, is a lot more. So for me, I either get nothing done during the day because I'm taking the day off or I'm doing R&D or I'm doing meetings or whatnot, or I have a, a really productive day. I don't tend to have anything in between. So I have both, but, but nothing in between. I completely agree on the email on the email thing. Um, that is the worst mistake I ever made was setting my phone up to receive work email. It was, and it's not just the distraction during the day, but when a super urgent email comes through at half past ten at night, and you just happen to be awake, and oh, this will be a quick thing for me to sort out. And at one o'clock in the morning, you're still quickly sorting it out. You know that type of thing. So. It, Removing email from your phone is definitely, definitely a must. A must do for me. Um, for me, it's it'll be tricky to get an email from a customer and not respond to it. Mm. That's that's not cool. So I'd rather not get the email at all and rather get it at a point where I'm going to sit down and actually action it. Um, but having said that, in terms of being contactable, I think you've got to be contactable. But I think the customer must understand that. That email is not for, you know, it's not a, if it's a crisis, then it's fine. Um, otherwise, it's tricky to be on call the whole time. And then what emails do you respond to and what don't you respond to? And then it becomes a, a ping pong thing because you respond and then someone else is awake and they respond and then you just get caught in this whole kind of spiral. So I just want to check quickly somebody, and I think I know who it is, and I just want to confirm. Um, they actually have in the signature of their email, they actually say, look, I only check this email address once a day. That's it. I don't, you know, this is not something that is checked all day. And I want to say it's Kevin Trithiwi from, from Driven. And I really should know this considering I get emails from the guy <laughs> a fair amount. I can't, I can't find an email of his now that's actually got that signature on. Um, but that's oh there we go there we go so his his signature actually says this inbox is checked once a day if anything needs urgent attention then please call and and he gives the you know he gives his contact number where he can be reached and i think from a productivity point of view at that point you can then set a time say you know from i don't know from 4 to 5 in the afternoon i check emails if something was urgent if something was super important that person would have called me then. And I'm sure that would, you know, that would help with keeping focus that you're not bouncing to email continually throughout the day. Yeah, because email just chews up a whole bunch of time. I think the I think it was a, a Timothy Ferris thing from his his four hour work week book where he recommends uh, like checking email twice a day, something to that effect. Uh, and putting something in your in your email photo or something to that effect that kind of says, you know, only check emails at 11 and 3 or whatever the time is, uh, which is fine. I mean, whatever works for you, that's that's cool. Um, I haven't got to the point that I only check email twice twice a day. It's a little bit more than that. <laughs> I've got, um, yeah, kind of send and receive uh, OCD on that button. But um, I used to have that. I, I used to have severe... I, th I think the, the shortcut was F9 or control F9 in, in Outlook. And when I worked at a company years ago, I got to points in my day where I just control F9 for five minutes and just wait for something to come through. So I actually had some work to do. 
that's a whole different story around things that, that, that I was doing wrong at that time. But anyway, so I have two more questions that I'd really like to ask you. Um, and Peter, please, you know, if there's, if you want to carry on your line, please jump in. Um, so working with financial stuff, when you decided to, to go solo and do it 100%, you know, did you try and do your own accounting from the start or did you actually just, you know, farm that out to somebody else? Was the, is it a, a service that you used or did you just look up in the classifieds and find a, a, a bookkeeper and hire them? So I have, I have a, an accounting company that I use. Uh, it's a local one. I think they're kind of down your, your side of the world, Stephen. And uh, they do all of them. They do everything, which is what I need. So I'm very involved in the financials, obviously, but I don't do uh, tax submissions and VAT payments and PAYE and all that sort of thing. They, they do it for me. So it all gets done because, I mean, that's really important to get it done. But to do it yourself, I just I weigh up the cost, uh, which I think is something it, you kind of become a, a financial expert to some degree when you when you work for yourself or when, when you have your own company because you need to you need to weigh up. Is it worth a couple of hours of my time or is it better to pay someone the equivalent of, of one hour or whatever the amount is to do something that would take me longer? So. That's that's the route I've gone. So I've, I've outsourced that part, amongst a whole bunch of others, but that's one specific one. Yeah, look, if, if I ever decided to start my own company, I'd have to do that because I've never done accounting, <laughs> and I don't know tax law and that type of thing. So I'm I'm the kind of guy that would have to. It wouldn't be an option for me, really. Um, Peter. Um, no, I kind of like that idea, and I think it's. Um, well, for me specifically, since um, Monday is the dreaded day that I attempt to um, start working for uh, towards something that Simon's going to be doing, but uh, um, I wouldn't even start to imagine doing my own accounting. That would be bad, and I'd probably end up in jail. <laughs> uh, Peter, you'd do so well in jail. You'd be the pretty guy that everybody liked. Oh dear, let's edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um and then Simon Sars, I love you. <laughs> um Simon last question from my side. Um as somebody who's now started their own company, um or somebody who's looking to go freelance, what are the the tools or the apps that, that you cannot live without for 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 the way you run your your stuff? Okay, so I can give you a couple of ones that I use. Uh, whether they're applicable to other people, it's always hit and miss, I guess. So I'm using Slack a fair amount over the last sort of six months or, or thereabouts, uh, but very much as, a, as an asynchronous thing. So I think Slack's great for a lot of things, but I think to actually get really important things done, I don't know if it's necessarily the best way to do things. Um, because often I'll miss something in Slack. So I think it's more around broadcasting status and it's kind of a replacement for, for the water cooler. That's how I see it. Um, it's very useful, 
but I think it's more around the, that kind of water cooler replacement. That's that's the way I see it. Um, having said that, we've actually done a couple of uh, web bots or Slack bots for for customers, which are working quite well. So so they think we're answering their questions, but it's actually a piece of Node code, which is quite cool. Um, I use Trello and Jira uh, for project tasks. Uh, I'm not going to get into a discussion about which one's better because the only one of them requires a PhD. Um, but I think you've got to have some some transparency with customers around what's getting done in a way you're getting blocked and and your your velocity for for you know whatever the, the better word is. Um, Dropbox I use a fair amount as well. So I use Dropbox on on all my devices and everything is in Dropbox. Um, I don't use I don't put source code in Dropbox uh, unless I'm archiving stuff. So I had an issue with a, a Git repo that that pushed past the one gig barrier, which is not something that you should do. Um, but that's only because my my Windows machine for some reason didn't crash every year. It like lasted three years or something crazy. So I wouldn't I didn't know it just kind of grew and grew and grew and then I couldn't I couldn't clone it. So in terms of tools, I, mean, I try and keep things really simple. I really do. There's an interesting one that I saw on Product Hunt, I think today or yesterday, called 24, which is a to-do list, which is something we've all seen and we probably all plan to do at some point. But the nice thing about 24 is it actually resets after every day, which I think is a really cool way to do things. So it prevents you from having things in your to-do list that are there for like six months. So I think that was quite a cool, quite a cool take on it. Well, it's quite interesting that somebody's actually come up with a new take on a to-do list because I don't know how many to-do list apps there are out there, but I mean, that, that does sound pretty cool. Um, well, quite a cool thing. I think it's, yeah, it's called 24, if I'm not mistaken. I'll, I'll, I'll find that link and then we'll, and then we'll tweet it out. We'll tweet it out as well. I try and keep things really simple. Uh, I don't, the apps that I've got for the most part are, are pretty transient. I don't, I don't really want to have tons and tons of apps that I use actually for everyday use, um, just because I think things just become too too complicated. So I try and keep things reasonably simple. I think that's a good way to go. Simple, simple is always the easiest. Cool, uh, Peter. So nothing more from your side? Uh, no, not at all, Stephen. Um, Simon, um, Simon, you covered pretty much everything I wanted to ask anyway from a from a going solo point of view. Um, so, no. Cool. Simon, is there anything that we haven't um, touched on or mentioned that you think is important for somebody who wants to start up something um, solo that, you know, things that they should consider? Stephen, I think the most important thing is to not take other people's advice when it comes to going solo or not. Uh, it's something that's a very personal decision and it's, it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. You've got to do what's, what's relevant for you and what makes sense for you. The last thing you want to do is, is put your, yourself at risk because I don't think that's a good way to do things. And I know some people, and, and I've certainly done it a couple of times where you just take the jump um, and there's you know there's merit in that because I think by actually taking the jump, it forces you to get certain things done. 
um, I've got several people that are working for, for big corporates and every time that I meet them, they talk about their plan to go solo and their plan to do this and their plan to do that. And I don't think there's any sense of urgency around, around that. Um, but having said that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't burn the boats. I wouldn't, I wouldn't quit and then force yourself to go and find other clients because it's a, it's a risky thing to do. So there's a, there's a fine piece of wisdom to end off everything. Um, I'd, re- I'd really do agree with that. And that's, that's one of the reasons why when we chatted last year, I just decided, yeah, I'm not ready for it yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm still happy to work, work with other people and, and let them handle all the admin and all the tough stuff. <laughs> I'll just write the code because that's the easy part, right? Not a bad thing. Cool. I think the worst thing you can do is be in a position where you're not you're not comfortable and it's not a natural fit for you. And if it's a natural fit to be working for other people, then that's fine. It's not a. I think there's a, a misconception that that you've got to quit your job and go solo, and that's kind of the the, the pinnacle. I don't think that's the case at all. So there's pros and cons for both. It's as it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, cool. So I think let's jump. Let's jump across into the picks quickly. Um, Peter, have you got anything this week? Uh, sorry, Stephen, I didn't get that. Uh, the line broke up. Uh, picks, picks for the week. Any anything to pick? Um, pick my nose. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't tweet I just... that, Di. I can't tweet that. <laughs> um, I just. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to pick Slack again uh, since. Um, since Simon mentioned it, I think it's a really, really great way, especially if you're um, keen on building up connections. If you can't get to all the user groups, um, well, especially since we're in Durban, it's difficult to get to the Johannesburg and Cape Town user groups. Yeah. Is to jump on there and get in touch with people. So a great way to build connections and a great way to to get to start uh, um, like forming those relationships Simon was talking about. Yeah. So I'm going to pick the ZA Developer Slack channel. Cool. And if you are a developer in South Africa and you don't ha- and you aren't on the ZA Dev Slack channel, just drop um, our Twitter profile a message and just say, look, you know, I want to be added. Um, I think that I think one of the only rules is no recruiters. Um, you know, besides the whole, you know, don't be a jerk rule but i mean that applies to life in general but if you're a dev i've had a few people say hey you know we keep talking about it how do they get on it just tweet us a message or just you know get get hold of me somehow um and yeah we'll we'll sort you out um simon anything specific you want to pick i've got a couple of things uh you guys are always welcome to edit out just from a timing point of view yeah we include it all so so i'm a big fan of of books, which is which is quite unusual because most people aren't. Um, but I think it's maybe because most people don't really put too much effort into their craft, uh, which sounds really cynical, but it's it is. Um, that's kind of just how it is. I see it in kind of most people or most groups that I that I chat with. Uh, you often find it's only a couple of people that really really actually want to you know improve their their craft. So a couple of books that, that I think are really cool to read. And funny enough, none of these are actually none of them are actually code related. And I think that's a cool thing. 
Um, probably the best business book that I read was Netscape Time by Jim Clark. So one of the Netscape guys. Um, so it's a brilliant book. So anyone that can find it and it's very difficult to find, I'm not sure it's just kind of pre-Kindle. Um, but if you can find Netscape Time, that's a really cool book to read. Cool. Uh, there's another one which is actually freely available, uh, which is called Almost Perfect, which is by Pete Peterson, which is one of the Word Perfect guys. He was one of the early hires of Word Perfect. And it just talks about their kind of the, the initial kind of ramp up of the of the the company and the product and the Microsoft competition uh, and the kind of downward slide as well. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, the book called Marissa Mayer and the Fight to Save Yahoo is also really interesting. Uh, and I think a lot of these books are cool because they take you through a, a journey. They take you through a journey about what people are thinking and what works and what doesn't work. And it's, you know, for the most part, you presume a lot of it's fact, or hopefully all of it's fact. So it's not a not a snake sale, not snake oil salesman who's making money by selling books. You know, it's actually like yeah. a book is a product. So I actually um, didn't know that Marissa Mayer had actually brought out, a, or there was a book about her time at Yahoo. So I'm definitely going to check that out because I would love to see the rationale behind when she um, basically said, right, no more remote work. That to me was something that was very, very interesting. So I'm definitely going to check that one out. Thank you. It's a very interesting. It's not by her. It's by it's by someone else. But it's um, oh, okay. So we'll see what happens with with Yahoo. Mm. Uh, the book is The Alliance by Reid Hoffman. And uh, the one takeaway for me for that, the big one, was around structuring employment as a tour of duty and not as a as a lifetime thing. And I think it, it kind of scares away a lot of people because a lot of people think that the, the company is going to be there forever and the company thinks that the, the employee is, is bound there for life. Uh, but the reality is that's not really the case. Uh, so the Alliance by Reed Hoffman, I think, is really cool. Um, and any book that you can get around Starbucks is a really, it's a really interesting company to, to learn from. If you think about it, they, they sell coffee. That's all they do. There's no life-changing stuff. They're not impacting anything. It's they're selling you a cup of coffee, but yet the the culture is is completely different. The culture is what most companies want to be, which is a a strange thing. They're not solving world hunger or world peace or anything like that, but yet they can do things right. Um, and the last one for me is to make sure that you watch Silicon Valley, the TV series. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It hits a bit close to home, I think. It's a bit too... I think anyone that's worked at a corporate and hasn't watched Office Space, I think you're doing yourself an injustice. And the same goes for Silicon Valley. So if you, if your mind is in that headspace, I think it's cool to go and watch things like that. I know it's all anecdotal and, and that kind of thing, but, but I, think it's, I think it's cool. So that's, that's me. Cool. So I haven't watched Office Space and I've heard a number of people recommend it and I keep forgetting to get hold of it. So I'll add that one. But yeah, Silicon Valley, I, I absolutely love. It's it's rough. Um, so yeah, it's not the type of thing my wife watches. But from a dev point of view, uh, the end of season one absolutely slayed me. I could not stop laughing. But anyway, cool. So my picks for this week, I, I also have a few for for once. Um, my first talk, my first pick is actually going to be a talk by this guy, um, Simon Stewart. 
who uh, just had a talk um, entitled How to Be an Effective Freelancer. Um, so I, I've actually watched that talk twice now, two or, two or three times now, and every single time I've gotten something out of it. So thank you, Simon. Um, and the my second pick is going to be um, the Freelancers Show podcast. They discuss some interesting things. Obviously, the the environment that they work in is very different to uh, uh, business wise is very different to the South African context. There's some things that I think are are the same throughout. So they also discuss things like you know how to stay focused, how they split up their day, how they deal with email, and all that type of thing. Um, and then my final pick is going to be a, a game, which is uh, The Witcher Three. I, I'm struggling to tear myself away from that. <laughs> it's actually been, I didn't expect it to be this good, but it is It is amazing. Cool. And that's us. Simon, would you like to just uh, give people, uh, you know, anywhere specific that they can follow you online or, or get more info about, about you and who you are? So I'm, I'm always hesitant to give out my Twitter account. Uh, so <laughs> the, the best option is to is to go to our training site, which is codeskills.co.za, or, um, yeah, that's probably the best one, is to is to hit that up. I think you'll you'll get a good understanding of what we're offering and, and the mindset behind it, which should answer, answer a fair amount of questions. So that's probably the best option. That's perfect. Um, and then for Peter and I, it's the same as always. Peter is P. Charmesais. And, yes, Peter, I will tweet. Don't worry. Um, and then anybody who wants to get hold of me is just at stevenmcd underscore code and yes if anybody wants invites to the slack channel and you're a developer just drop us a message and we'll sort that out simon thank you very very much for spending an hour of your time with us on a saturday night of all things i really appreciate the 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 inputs and the discussion oh you're welcome thanks very much Thank you very much, Peter, for chatting to us on the day after your birthday while you're kind of on holiday visiting family. So thank you for making the time as well. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Cool. Thank you very much. Bye.